So when Joe Burrow wins the Super Bowl today, you're going to say, we won. It's an amazing. We won. When David killed Goliath, all of Israel said, we won. They weren't on the field of battle. Just David was out there. You're not going to be playing that game today. You're going to be sitting on your couch eating food, but you're going to say, we won. When Jesus conquered the grave, we say, we won. How do we say that? When he's your champion, when you identify your life with him, his victory becomes your victory. If those are just words of a song, then you're not on his team yet. You get on his team. You get him in you. What he's done, you can do. That's the power of the gospel. That's the transformation of a life when the Savior becomes your Savior. Father God, this day in this house, would you invade this space? Would you invade my space? Would I know that you showed up because you made me uncomfortable and you're holy and I'm not? You point things out to me I really don't want to see. You stretch me to places I really don't want to go, but it's so grateful you got me there. God, in the best of my ability, I want to make room for Jesus in me. Come, Lord Jesus, show up in this place, we pray. His name, amen. Please take a seat. Thank you, worship team, so much. Woo, that's good. That was good. Well, hey, if this is your first time with us, either here or online, welcome. Let me extend a special welcome to you. If you'd like to make uh, more of a connection with us, there's a connect card on your seat. Just take it out, fill it out, or on your computer screen, fill it out, uh, let us know. Uh, I heard you guys had terrible weather last week. I was suffering for Jesus, and somewhat that's true, but it was absolutely gorgeous. I went to a remote place uh, in Honduras called La Mesquitia. Anybody been there before? I, I, I've been to, Paula, you've been to La Mesquitia? Oh, yeah. I, I've been to the country probably 25 times easy, but I've never been to this remote section. We had to take multiple planes to get us there. And uh, there's been a group of dentists that have been going down there for years. And when you're in pain, you know, you want relief. And if you're in tooth pain, you, you want it quick. Well, imagine a place that people have few teeth to begin with. There, there's no dental hygiene like we're used to. Nobody flosses. And please floss. Uh, but, you know, uh, and I flossed every day because I normally don't, and I brush my teeth twice a day. When you spend all day pulling teeth because people didn't take care of them, you think, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm cleaning up my teeth. But uh, these guys uh, served and served well. Uh, this, I have a slide of uh, Mesquitia. Could you put that up for me? Yeah. There. So um, it's called uh, Gracias a Dios. Um, um, thanks to God. That's that's the name of this, this region. And um, not only did I meet amazing people there, but the team that uh, serves just blew me away in their uh, service. I, I met one woman there. She went on a short-term mission trip like some of you maybe have or you've thought about doing. She did it as a young lady, and yet God gripped her heart, and she became a preschool teacher. When the founder of this children's home died, she relocated from Texas and took over this place. 
single woman, early 40s, wasting her life on children that really nobody even knows of, but are precious to God and precious to her. I, I just cried when I met her. I was so overwhelmed with this person. So thank you for, uh, you know, allowing me to go. I, I uh, so appreciated Pastor Malcolm stepping in while I was out and the message he gave. I know it was emotional for him as he spoke uh, about, you know, aging and uh, living and dying with his uh, uh, mother's Alzheimer's and what's going on there. Um, I trust it was a good word for you. And and so, uh, you know, I, I did find out that he did cover chapter 12 in uh, this uh, series from the book of Ecclesiastes. So he kind of jumped ahead a little bit. So we talked and said, let's just wrap up the series. We were going to go one more week, but felt like we really have covered the major themes of the book. We've left you sufficiently depressed and frustrated each week. And so why not move on, right? So let me uh, wrap this uh, series up. And it does end on a bit of a high note. And so um, I want to invite you to follow along as uh, Marissa comes up, and she's going to read the scripture for us today. So would you, in honor of God's word, would you stand as she reads from uh, chapter 12, the last section here? I think you're good. You want me to do anything for you? You could put your Bible right there, and how's that? Okay, great. Thanks. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. Keep this in mind, the teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to the many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express the truth clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like nail-studded stick with a shepherd drives the sheep. But my children, let me give you some further advice. Be careful for writing books is unless much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Here is now my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. This is everyone's duty to God. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. This is God's word for God's people. Thank you, Marissa. So appreciate that. Can you guys please take a seat? Okay, so here's uh, our teacher, right? The philosophy professor, we've called him. And the book ends like the book began. If you remember the way the book started out, the teacher said, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That, that's how we started this great encouraging series. And after all his musings, 12 chapters of questions and pursuits, he comes to the same conclusion. Everything is meaningless. There's really no point, no purpose, no profit, no lasting, enduring, eternal significance for anything in this life under the sun. That's why we said this is probably the most relevant book of our time. 
Because we right now are in a season of searching. We're in a, an era of reevaluating. People are questioning and reconsidering all kinds of things. And as painfully honest this book is about life, its paradoxes and its conundrums, its frustrations and its futility. Like, how can you work hard all your life and then die never being able to enjoy what you've accomplished, let alone have any real sense that it mattered, that it was regarded, let alone going to be remembered. That's something the teacher said, that's what makes it meaningless. Or how can you choose to do right, obey the rules, try to be a decent guy, and yet the person next door, you know, doesn't follow any of the rules, only thinks of himself, and he seems to be better off than you. I mean, What's the point then of even trying? So many things seem so random, so happenstance, without any rhyme or reason, at least what we can figure. And so this book says some of the most raw and outlandish statements that you'll find anywhere in the Bible, uh, things that we might think and feel, maybe we'd say, but certainly never in church, right? Here's one. I declared that the dead who are all who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. No amens, please. Okay. But better than both is the one who's never been born. Sounds like George Bailey a little bit, right? Who has never, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Here's another one. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these things. The righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So in other words, don't be over-righteous. Can you say that in the Bible? I mean, come on. Neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Why put forth all the effort? What's the point? What, what do you make of this? I mean, really, if you've been going along with us each week or maybe even reading the book on your own, I mean, is this guy a cynic or a skeptic? Maybe a little bit of both. I think actually he's a practical secularist. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, we, we, we certainly found statements in this book about God and judgment. So it appears that this guy believes. But frankly, he believes like most people believe today. You know, 90% of all Americans say, well, I believe in God. You know, in a higher power of some sort. But, but God is... He's abstract. He's, he's unknowable. He's distant and not really involved in my day-to-day -day life. And if he is, I can't understand what he's doing. So practically, it's as if he isn't there. That's what I mean by a practical secularist. God might be real, but in the everyday, what difference does it really make? And that's how he views life under the sun. That's the phrase he's been using, this under the sun, right? This, this qualifier that he says over and over again. And that phrase isn't found anywhere else in the Bible, only here. And his conclusion about life under the sun, life without a God who's known and knowable, who's interested and involved with you, well, it's just meaningless. You can't make any sense out of it. So why not live and let live? Be happy, seize the day, you know, carpe diem, right? Because the day is all you got, and nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. It's just anyone's guess. So 
sound familiar to you? Sound like something you've heard, maybe something you've thought or said? Now, the genius of this book, the power of it, why I said to you previously, I think this is the most evangelistic book in all the Bible. I think it's a book that people should read before they read any other part of the Bible because he does something that so few ever do. And that is, he doubts his doubts. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let me give you my outline for this morning. Uh, unless we get too far down the road and we don't get back to this passage and, and you think, where are you going? This, 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 here it is. We're going to talk about the value of pondering, the purpose of wisdom, and the priority of life. And we start with pondering, asking questions, doubting. In this case, he's doubting his doubts. Listen to how the text begins again. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered, there's the word, and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words. You think, can't you say it better? No, no, just the right words for what he taught was upright and true. A few months back, we did an entire sermon series called Questioning Christianity, Doubting Our Beliefs. And it's a valuable discipline for you to engage in. Because if you're a simple kind of person, you say, you know, you know I've always had a childlike faith my whole life. Chances are good that life or someone you love is going to challenge you on what you believe. You're going to face an untimely death of a loved one or, or, or senseless suffering is going to come to you or somebody you care about. Something or someone's going to you know, ask you a question. And if you've not thought about why you believe, you're going to find that what you're clinging to, those little pat answers and Christianese, they don't hold up in this storm. Your faith will have eroded and deteriorated. It won't give you the stability you thought it would. That faith will fail you. Your faith will get shaken. And it's because now you're starting to doubt. Rather than taking time out to doubt your faith and use your doubt to Dig in to think more deeply, more seriously, and not just have a nostalgic kind of faith that's like a, you know, soft blanket or a warm cup of milk. It brings you a little comfort, but it doesn't cure anything. Look, if you don't believe the Christian doctrine, then you believe something else, right? When you stop believing what the Bible teaches, aren't you exchanging that for a different set of beliefs? So can't those beliefs be doubted? I'm not trying to use double talk here, but I want you to think about this. If somebody says, well, no one can know for certain about God and religion, aren't you at that moment assuming that you know enough to make that statement? Do you catch the logic on that? Or say, well, well there just can't be one religion that's true? Isn't that also a Statement of faith, you can't prove that empirically, and it's certainly not a universal belief. I dare you to go to the Middle East and make that claim, right? So in a somewhat subtle and sophisticated way, the teacher in this book doubts his own doubts and ours. And he takes this view to where it would go 
when you think about under the sun. If it's true that there really, this is all there is, he says, well, then let's see if I can find meaning, any significance, fulfillment in life without a belief in a real substantive God who's engaged with me. And so each week, if you've been here, we've, we've looked at a different path that the teacher's gone down. His path of, you know, toward happiness. He pursued pleasure and, you know, let's, whatever makes you happy kind of thing. Then we looked at his pursuit of career and achievement, then justice and social progress. And yet every path he went down, he hit a brick wall. And it was the same wall. You remember what it was? <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the one we all hit. It's called death. Death is the great frustration of life, the dark abyss that no one can escape, that no one can be certain about what comes next. So no matter what you pursue, how much fun you're having along the way, if the ship is sinking, it's kind of hard to think anything really is all that important, that anything really matters because in a matter of minutes, we're all going to drown, right? That's the picture he keeps coming to over and over again. And so the teacher uses his words, his skillful style to try to teach us something. That's the value of pondering, of thinking, of asking questions, yes, of doubting. He's trying to impart some wisdom to us. And here's the wisdom, that there is an undeniable futility in this life, a feeling of pointlessness. Yet that futility, if you let it, can lead you to a richer and deeper kind of faith. Let me just read you one small section from the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul's magnus opus of the Christian faith, because he says something in this section that I'm going to read, I'm going to read to you, that sounds like he's in total agreement with the teacher from Ecclesiastes. And on this point, he is. Listen to these words. This is Romans chapter 8, New Testament, right? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Something in the future he's saying. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. There's a futility in life to push you to start hoping for something better because the creation itself was set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Paul's saying the emptiness that we can feel, the pointlessness that we can experience, yeah, that's part of life, but there's an intention to get us someplace past that to something deeper, richer, called a hope of what's to come. That's the value of pondering, to get us to a kind of wisdom we'd never get to on our own. And that's the purpose of wisdom. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and of much study wearies the body. If you students haven't memorized this that verse right there, you should memorize it and quote it to your teacher when you didn't do your homework assignment. Because it just makes you too weary. And the Bible says don't give too much time to all that reading stuff. Seriously. But what's he saying here, though? He's saying two things to us. Wisdom isn't always about finding answers. 
but it is about taking steps. Studying and searching sometimes can become an excuse for people, a distraction from doing. I'm just not certain. I need to read another book on that. I need to keep thinking about it. Haven't you heard about the perpetual students? Maybe you parents have one and you're still paying for them. You know, it's like, get a degree and get a job already, right? That's what he's saying. And the folks are always learning but never doing. That's not wisdom. Wisdom recognizes that sometimes there are no answers, that sometimes life is a mystery. That's how it is. Hopefully you've learned that. There is this futility in life, this sense of meaninglessness when our focus is on life under the sun. When my focus is just what's here, there is an emptiness there. And wisdom understands that. It accepts that. It embraces that. And once you know that, it's not something you sit on your hands about. No, it's something that actually you act upon. See, wisdom moves us. The words of the wise are like, Marissa read it, cattle prods. Did you ever, you ever ride a horse and they call them spurs, right? You kind of, same thing. They would poke the cattle, they poke the sheep, they, you know, poke the horse to get it to move. That's the picture. He said, this stuff's supposed to poke you. You're paying attention. See, it's a little dark sometimes. I can't always see your faces, but I try to jab at you a little bit, not because I'm, you know, an irritable and annoying person. I might be, but that's not the reason. Because I know that's the point of the scripture. It's supposed to, hey, I didn't like that. If we just want to be comforted, let's stay on our couch. Okay. Oh, sorry. I got too personal. Uh, Why? You think it's church? You think you come to church today? My goodness. You're going to say something like, but that's what the book does to us. It pushes our buttons. And this book pushed our buttons. It confused us. It frustrated. It maybe angered us. But all in the quest to move us, to change our thinking and ultimately change our living. I've said this before. The, the Bible isn't into just head knowledge. Let's go to have another Bible study. Let's have a, read another book. It's about heart change. So when you press out the thinking of this book, if you take it to where he drives it, what life is under the sun, you get to this sense of this frustration and this futility. And it begins to make you feel uncomfortable because if this is all there is, then it is empty. Do, do you know the name Arthur Miller? Do you, do you know that name? The uh, pray, uh, playwright and author, probably most famous for Death of a Salesman, right? But he wrote another play called After the Fall. And in there, there's a profound statement by the protagonist, Quentin, and that in many ways parallels what we're trying to talk about here. This this unavoidable conclusion of living life for only under the sun and how it can make you feel empty. Listen to how this was in this play. This is Quentin talking. He says, you know, more and more, I think that for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you were young, you prove how brave you are or smart. And then what a good lover. And then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what I would be justified. 
or even condemned. A verdict, anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. I'm trying to prove to somebody that I matter, but there's nobody there. What's the point then? That's exactly how our teacher ended. I'm trying to vindicate or validate myself, but to who? The bench is empty. There's no judge. There's no jury. There's no final court because all you've got is life under the sun. So life is meaningless. It has no purpose, no point, no profit. That's what the teacher's been driving at. When you think, so all your friends, school, work, when they act as if this is all there is to life, you press the point of that, you find life's pretty meaningful if that's your thinking. And that's what he does. In the Bible, he pushes you to that belief and says you got nothing if that's what you hold to. And he ends just the way he began. And I've told you that this book has two voices in it. There's the teacher who's done most of the talking, and there's the editor, the guy who put the book together. And this final section is him speaking. He's talking, remember, third person about the teacher. This is his summary that he's giving. He said the teacher said these things, the teacher did these. He's talking about the person who wrote the book, but he's the one who put the book together. And he now gives us the conclusion, the point of why he put the book together, the point that he wants us to get, lest we don't get it, because you don't easily get the point of this book. Verse 13. Now all that has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Here's the priority of life. Now, on one level, the conclusion that this editor got to might not sound all that profound to you. I mean, of course, this is going to be the priority of life. This is the Bible, and the Bible's always talking about fearing God and keeping his commandments, right? So what's so big about that? But be honest, if you follow this book, you would not think that's where you would come to after listening to this teacher for 12 chapters. You, you wouldn't come to this conclusion. If, and yet, if we've been able to see all that's been happening here, what the author and the editor were trying to do with the teacher's ponderings, he's pushed us on every pursuit till we got nowhere. And we've said, when, where do you go? Either it is utterly meaningless or there's ultimate meaning. Listen, the author has shown us through these various and sundry pursuits that the human soul is too large for any one quest to fill it. Only God can do that. 
That's why he hit a dead end after a dead end, because nothing can satisfy an eternal being. We need something eternal. We're made for something so much more, more than life under the sun. Something that is above and beyond the sun is the only thing that can satisfy us. And that is a real living relationship with the God who is. Now, the author says something here that I wonder if we too quickly skip over. I read it, you've heard it before, and you don't see the connection so often. And that is, if you want to have a real relationship with God, something that's substantive and significant, that fills the cosmic hole that's inside of you like it is every human being, two ingredients are essential. Fear and obedience. Reverence and compliance. There's got to be a heartfelt awe and wonder at the majesty and beauty of God and then a volitional change that yields and surrenders to his guidance and his will. And if you don't have both, you don't have a connection. So this morning, I, I, I come in early on Sunday mornings, and I listen to NPR. I, I like listening to public radio, and uh, Kristen Tibbetts is on, and, and I like On Bean. If you don't know any of it, that's fine. So she had a Celtic talker on there today, a guy who's in the Celtic, uh, and that's the uh, Irish uh, traditions. And he was talking about the majesty of the divine, the beauty of nature and the power of creation, and very mystical and wonderful, you know, and all you think. And there are plenty of people that are that are into the divine. They're into God and this, you know, the mystery of who he is and what he's like, and the man upstairs, and he's big and wow and wonderful. But there's no specific direction and guidance for their life, no stipulations and standards that they need to follow or live by. None of that. So in other words, in life, practically speaking, you're on the path all by yourself trying to figure it out. God might be out there somewhere, but down here it's just you. And so you're left with trying to save yourself. You've got to be your own judge and jury. You're the only savior you have. And you hear people talk about this, you know, something out there, but it means nothing down here. So just fear of God, a fear of Mother Nature or whatever, that ain't going to cut it. But on the other hand, if, you know, you're going to scout honor and do your rules and come to your religion and follow all that, if that's all your focus, then all your emphasis is your attempt to make a connection with God. You earn your standing with him in some way. And your compliance to God is compulsory. And your relationship with God is servitude. You're a slave at best. And all your efforts are in hopes that it's enough to be redeemed and justified. Again, it's all back to you. You better don't mess up. Don't screw up once because, oh, my gosh, I don't know how the scale's going to go. See, the editor says you got to have both. This is how it has to be. There first has to be a knowing, a heartfelt warming of God's goodness and his greatness that makes you in awe of him. Remember these words from the Psalm 8? You know, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God, that you, 
you know a little pipsqueak like me and you love me? That, that's got to blow my mind. And then after I'm certain of his care for me, I continue with him through the storms of life. When I'm confident of his mercy and grace toward me, I'll be honest about my failures and my shortcomings. When I'm secure in his love and acceptance, then my obedience will flow out of a want to, not a have to. You going to have Valentine's Day tomorrow? Do you put the toilet seat down because you love that woman? I mean, do you you clean up after you? Don't you do things out of love? Isn't it easy when you do it out of love? Why do you think God would want it any other way? Why do you think religion works? It doesn't work. Servitude never works. There's no sacrifice when it comes from love. There's a power within that I have a want to. I think, I didn't have that in me. I was like, I'm... I didn't have that. That's the transformation of my heart. I know I got changed by Jesus because I have a want to. I was religious. Lord have mercy. We went to church all the time, and you better. But when Jesus changed me, there was a want to. That's what he's getting at. And this is what Jesus said it's supposed to be. We obey out of love, and God's loved us first. And then when that love changes us, when we're overwhelmed by who he is, then we want to follow him. And the teacher says, that makes, the teacher that said, it's all meaningless, the editor says, if you get this, it makes all the difference. The teacher said, when you're living life under the sun, nothing matters. The editor says, when you're living with a relationship with God, everything matters. Did you catch how he said God will reward everything done, hidden, secret. He'll judge it and reward it. He'll remember everything. Everything matters because God is in everything. This is the deeper faith that it can lead you to. When your faith and your commitment becomes not just a part of your life, but life itself, then everything you do, washing the dishes going to Honduras, passing out, you know, the bucket for the offering, you know, wiping your kid's nose. Everything you do matters. There's no, it doesn't matter anymore. With God, everything matters. And when you're connected to him like that, then how you do everything matters because he matters. Paul put it this way. Listen to these encompassing words. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You want your life to have meaning? Make God the center of your life, and your life will never be empty. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for frustration and futility. I thank you for the times we say, what's the point? This seems like so foolish. And I did so much and it didn't work out. I pray for all the things that push us to the ends of ourself that we'd come to the beginning of you. If there was ever a foolish and futile act, it looked like when the innocent man died on a cross. Why did they do that to him? Jesus, you took on all the futility of this world to give me meaning 
in my life. You did it for me. When I can see myself as the one that should have been on the cross, then I'll recognize the amazing grace that was offered to me there. I pray for each heart today, Lord. I pray we are stirred in our bones. When we go back today and do our laundry or clean our house or prepare for work tomorrow, we do it different because it matters. Because you matter to us and we matter to you. God, thank you for a life that's been redeemed because of what Jesus did, not because of what I could do. These are the good words that we leave with. Thank you for your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.